Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined today by Andre Ganuela and our executive producer, Javed Ali. And there is a lot on our plate today. Uh, Andre, where are we going to start? So let's start off with the Colonial Pipeline. Uh, this pipeline has been shut down since Friday. Uh, we have Javed here who can sort of tell us a bit more about that. Uh, Javed, what's been going on, the Colonial Pipeline? It's been a big issue, but I don't think our audience will necessarily understand what exactly is happening, why this is shut down, and so on. Yeah, hey, uh, Brian, Andre, always great to be with you, and uh, thanks for having me this week. So on the Colonial Pipeline issue, this is a big deal, and I'm not sure how many people realize how big of a deal it is. So first off, let's just talk about what caused the, at least for now, the sort of temporary suspension of uh, fuel and sort of gas deliveries through this one major uh, artery known as the Colonial uh, Pipeline. So um, based on all the information that's come out, this was a, a cyber uh, directed attack by this Russian um, hacking group known as, uh, I believe it's DarkSide. And um, instead of using uh, cyber sort of methods that uh, disrupt the activity with no other sort of objective behind it. And there's certainly been lots of destructive cyber attacks using what is known as malware. This was um, somewhat related, but with a different objective. It, the, the operation was designed to um, sort of uh, impair the electronic ability of uh, the pipeline to operate its system, but then um, basically demand a ransom. Uh, so that type of uh, the cyber a cyber tool is known as ransomware. So um, once these electronic services or uh, activities are interfered with or suspended, then uh, a criminal group or some other organization will go to the victim and say, um, if you pay us X, X will then restore your services back to their normal function. So um, Based on the press reporting that's come out so far, it does not appear that the company Colonial Pipeline has paid the ransom. I mean, that that may have happened, but at least the information that's publicly available suggests it may not have. So with that said, they've tried to come up apparently with workarounds to make sure that um, the significant sort of volume of, of fuel and, and gas products that flowed through that pipeline all up and down the East Coast and then... Um, I guess, circling west in Texas can resume. And um, over the last few days, it's led to an increase in gas prices. Um, apparently, depending where you are on the East Coast or sort of uh, middle part of the country, you know, up to 10 cents or more a gallon. And for some people, that's a big deal um, and certainly has an impact on deliveries. So instead of um, the... The, the products flowing through this pipeline, um, apparently the sort of backup options have been to then move it over um, land, by rail, by sea. And that's just not as efficient as moving everything through a pipeline that then has sort of branches or, or arteries that go into sort of terminal points or endpoints um, where the fuel actually then sort of comes out and then into a, a car or some other, um, you know, uh, you know, system that uses uh, those products. So this is a massive disruption. It's had an economic uh, impact. It's appeared to have rattled the stock market as well. Um, 
the stock market is down uh, now uh, at least I think four or five percent um, this week, in part because of these uh, the anxiety over the Colonial Pipeline disruption. So um, that is having an impact too. And then there's this overall sort of psychological effect of just understanding these are the vulnerabilities that are associated with our critical infrastructure in the United States. And and to me, uh, what's one of the the more sobering kind of contrast with this um, notion of critical infrastructure protection is that in the early years after 9-11 and when I you know, was just starting my government career and had gotten to the Department of Homeland Security in 2003, the whole notion of um, critical infrastructure protection, and that was a big deal after 9-11, was based on the physical security of all these different infrastructure um, sectors and systems. And so much effort was poured into that, and perhaps for all the right reasons. But I would argue, at least in the past five years, if perhaps not even a little bit further back, um, that pendulum has swung more towards the cyber-related vulnerabilities of those same critical infrastructure sectors. And this is an example of that. And to see the disruptive effects, um, it doesn't have the the physical impact of, of a terrorist attack and, and luckily doesn't lead to the same you know, loss of life or, or injuries, but still a whole other series of, of effects in the United States. So this is, this is a big deal. It will continue to be a big deal, not necessarily, you know, with Colonial Pipeline, hopefully things will be restored relatively soon, but just this whole notion of shoring up cyber vulnerabilities uh, across the 16 critical infrastructure sectors we have in the United States. And until those vulnerabilities um, get uh, minimized or, or, or shut up, short up, um, criminal groups and nation states and other uh, malign actors will, will try to exploit them. Um, and this is, this is a serious issue we're going to have to wrestle with. Yeah. And just before we move on, I just want to mention for our listeners that uh, President Biden uh, on Wednesday signed an executive order kind of increasing the um, requirements for certain service providers to share information about breaches. It, it modernizes and implements uh, cybersecurity standards in the government and also establishes um, standards for non-government uh, organizations as well with this kind of quote-unquote energy star label so that consumers can kind of better understand what the protections are uh, for the products that they consume. And so these are all efforts that we've we've seen. Um, I'm not sure how successful they'll be. Of course, you know, we've seen hacking and ransomware by state and non-state actors, you know, in, in recent history and in a lot of them. And so this is just another kind of iteration in the ongoing kind of struggle to find a solution to U.S. cyber vulnerabilities. Yeah, and just one, one more thing um, before we wrap up on this. Um, if you look at this operation, which again, ransomware by ostensibly a criminal group, although I have my reservations, whether there, there isn't a, a foreign hand behind it, um, uh, on the heels of the solar winds uh, hack that affected not only the private industry, but the, the federal government. So the, the, the massive breach that started in the spring of 2020, but was only discovered by the end of 2020. Um, and all sort of signs point to, to Russia as being responsible for that. And then um, just a, a couple of weeks later in early um, 2021, sort of another big breach was um, exposed that had a Chinese 
uh, apparent Chinese um, hand uh, in it. And that was, uh, that had affected sort of the Microsoft suite of, of products and hundreds of thousands of, of um, sort of uh, users were, were affected by that. So this is just an, uh, this seems to be the latest in an ongoing series of cyber operations directed against the United States, against government targets, private industry, critical infrastructure, um, you name it. And again, until we get better at not only cyber defense, but drawing lines in the sand and imposing um, costs, either on nation states or criminal groups or other other adversaries, um, this is going to continue. And we're not going to see the last of these, unfortunately. So anyway, like moving on, uh, Javid, so you've been writing an op-ed, right, on some domestic terrorism circumstances and developments that have been occurring. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? So uh, here we are now in um, almost middle of May, uh, six, or uh, I'm sorry, four months removed from the events of January 6th, uh, the insurrection. Um, hopefully people still remember how, how powerful a moment um, that was and, and how shocking it was to see it um, play out. And then um, almost immediately uh, in coming into office, the Biden administration said that they were going to do more um, which included um, creating a new senior position and a team underneath that position at the National Security Council. So when I was in the Trump NSC, uh, that that position and team that is exclusively focused on domestic terrorism did not exist. So, so this is the first time that position um, has been created. And then since um, that time in uh, sort of the late January period, that um, that position led by a person named Josh Gelser, who's a good friend of mine um, and also has previous NSC experience uh, in addition to other federal service. Um, he's been leading that 100-day policy review. And then last week, the White House announced that apparently the review is over and that um, in weeks, not months, and that was the quote from the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, that an actual strategy or something that looks like a strategy document or a comprehensive national level document will be coming out. But in between late January and whenever the strategy document is going to come out, um, there have been a number of, of concrete steps uh, announced by different departments and agencies. And again, these steps, um, both individually through the lens of each department or agency and now collectively, um, this is a new approach that the federal government has taken. I don't think we've ever seen anything this um, sort of comprehensive before on the domestic terrorism issue. So quickly, just kind of running down the list, um, the Department of uh, Defense announced a uh, countering violent extremism working group. That may not be the, the actual title of the working group, but it's a, a group that has, uh, that was, uh, it's been supported at the highest levels by Secretary Austin and has four lines of effort in it. So four different kind of work streams on this whole issue of extremism within the military and also civilians in the department. Um, and part of uh, one of those lines of effort is focused on training and education um, to sort of spot signs of radicalization or perhaps even mobilization to violence um, within the military or, or civilian personnel. And then there's another line of effort on screening. So making sure that people who, who potentially hold these extremist views um, don't get into the department or into the actual uniform military um, uh, and are sort of filtered out through this screening process. So we're uh, in the early days of this, not yet sure um, 
how effective it'll be, but at least there's a recognition that there's a serious problem within DOD and this working group is now the sort of lead within the department to, to help um, kind of organize these, these lines of effort and, and see what results they deliver. So that's one. Um, next, uh, the Department of Homeland Security has announced a number of things that it uh, says are specifically focused on uh, domestic terrorism. One is uh, kickstarting a, a, an office that I had a lot of interaction with uh, over the years um, that is focused on preventing radicalization or combating radicalization. It was in the uh, previous years focused more on the international terrorism side of things and jihadist terrorism, but now it's going to focus on domestic terrorism in addition to the tr traditional jihadist one. That's It's been renamed as a center for prevention. Um, so again, I don't, I'm not sure it's rolled out yet officially, but they've announced it. Uh, another thing that DHS has said it is going to do is um, uh, rehabilitate, for lack of a better word, uh, an analytic team in the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis, and that's where our, my position was when I served at DHS, that's focused exclusively on domestic terrorism. Now, there used to be a team that did that going back to 2009, and that team was shut down uh, in the aftermath of a controversy over a report that they were trying to produce, which was analytically sound, but got wrapped up into some pretty um, controversial politics. And so I, I always thought that that was a mistake uh, that the department made um, back then. Um, but hopefully now they'll they'll bring that back and we'll see how that you know contributes to this broader DHS effort um, and leading analysis from, from what the, the folks there see. Another uh, thing DHS announced um, similar to the DOD uh, effort is um, a program designed to look at potential uh, extremist sympathizers within the ranks of, of DHS. DHS is the second biggest federal uh, department outside of DOD. So they believe there's over 240,000 um, folks across the different departments. You know, DHS component agencies. So that's going to be another big um, thing that DHS uh, tries to do. And then the fourth thing that DHS recently announced uh, over the last couple of months was announced was an increase in grant funding to state and local governments to, to spend a, a minimum sort of threshold of, of these grant dollars on Homeland Security uh, focused on domestic terrorism. So that had never happened before either, sort of a, a benchmark that's put into these um, grant allotments that uh, state and local governments who receive them will have to direct towards domestic terrorism. So there's a lot that DHS has said it is going to do or started to do, and I think that's encouraging. Um, next, looking at the Department of Justice and the FBI, the Attorney General, uh, Merrick Garland, um, has said that domestic terrorism is going to be a major priority for the department, he also is a very personal issue to him because he was the, the lead um, Department of Justice um, official overseeing the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. And prior to 9-11, that was the single biggest act of terrorism in the country committed by uh, Timothy McVeigh and his accomplice, Terry Nichols, who were anti-government extremists. Um, and so the attorney general has said that not only will has this been elevated as a priority issue that he has put in a funding request for more dollars for um, FBI and DOJ teams 
focused on this issue. He's also said that uh, he's going to, um, or the department's trying to increase its um, collaboration with state and local government and the governments and the private sector on domestic terrorism. So um, DOJ is certainly stepping up. Um, and then FBI Director uh, Ray um, said in March that the number, uh, now this is a general number, not specific to any one particular threat, uh, within the broad domestic terrorism landscape. But he said that the number roughly, at least back then in March uh, of domestic terrorism investigations was around 2000. And he said that was a doubling of the number that FBI was leading when he became director in 2007. So not to say that FBI investigations alone are the, the metric that suggests that a threat is increasing or decreasing, but when the number of cases has doubled in four years, that certainly points to to a trend. Um, so it seems like the FBI has definitely stepped up its focus on, on domestic terrorism. And then um, lastly, another organization uh, that I work for, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, had put out in March um, a first ever, at least unclassified report um, on domestic terrorism and established uh, what I would call an analytic framework or a taxonomy for at least how the intelligence community, um, led by the ODNI, uh, categorizes different types of domestic terrorist uh, threats. So there's one category of racially uh, motivated um, uh, uh, extremists. There's another category of um, anti-government uh, extremists. There's another category of animal rights and, and environmental uh, extremists. Um, and that I thought was another sort of good step from uh, the intelligence community side to put out an unclassified report that at least gives some sense of what the intelligence community thinks. And we'll see if that framework then gets used by other departments and agencies. So um, I know that was a lot, but I do think that it shows that this administration is trying to to increase its focus and um, doing more and then it'll be really interesting to see hopefully again um, in, in weeks um, what that national strategy uh, document led by the NSC looks like and how it tries to integrate these different things that I've just talked about in a more comprehensive and holistic approach. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that overview, Javid, and also a preview for your, your forthcoming op-ed, which we'll have linked uh, in this episode description once it's actually published. Uh, I now want to turn to the escalation of hostilities in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We've seen over 50 Palestinians having been killed as of Wednesday, seven Israelis, uh, thousands of rockets have been launched from Gaza. We've seen airstrikes by the Israeli government into Gaza. We have Jewish mobs and Arab mobs attacking one another. Uh, and so this is, again, as, as I said, the latest escalation of hostilities kind of originating, or at least recently, from this, I'd say, property dispute, which, again, with you know the, some restrictions over um, an, an Arab kind of plaza on, at the beginning of Ramadan, and then leading to the Israeli raid of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which, of course, is one of the most holy sites in all of Islam, uh, has kind of led to this this kind of escalation. And so Javed, uh, we'd, we'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, the, this, this conflict and you know, maybe what, from the US perspective, given you, know, you are a, a former senior official of the US government, what your thoughts are. Yeah, another complex and, and tough topic, and especially coming at a 
time um, for Muslims um, that's you know, very revered with um, Ramadan winding down um, either today, some people celebrate it today uh, and, and uh, others tomorrow. And yet um, sort of one of the most uh, you know, uh, holy places in Islam is, is sort of at the centerpiece of this dispute is as you talked about, Ryan, um, but if you take the long view of sort of the, the um, now more than 70 year conflict between Israel, uh, Israelis and Palestinians, I mean, th this to me just seems like the latest sad chapter in, in that long history. And what um, has happened over that 70 plus year period, you have these um, intense confrontations or these flashes of violence, and then um, eventually both sides go back to their respective corners, realizing that neither side has won. Oh, there's only losers really in these conflicts. And most of the losers, unfortunately, are innocent civilians that sort of trapped in the, the crossfire on both, both sides. Um, and then there are attempts to negotiate and then the negotiations kind of stall out and fail. And then four or five years later, you just see another flash to violence. And so to me, we're just this is just yet another chapter in what seems like this endless cycle of violence between both sides. Um, and that, again, that's a, a sobering reality. I'm not sure the violence has reached its high point yet, uh, even though, Ryan, as you described, uh, I mean, it, it seems pretty brutal um, right now uh, for, for both sides. And uh, the Israeli government has um, issued some some pretty stark uh, language or threats. Um, Hamas on the other side has showed no signs of, of restraint or, or pulling back. And again, innocent Palestinians are, are suffering uh, because of that. Um, globally, not sure there's much of an appetite at the moment to, to do much beyond you know, some attempts at diplomacy or rhetoric. I don't think there's been uh, any kind of emergency meeting at the UN. Um, the Biden administration seems to be treading pretty cautiously. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken has, has said that, um, you know, there obviously needs to be a reduction in violence, but um, has said that Israel has a right to defend itself, but also uh, the Palestinians, you know, need to have a sense of security and safety as well. So it doesn't look like the U.S. is overtly trying to pick one side over the other, but it's also we're also it also doesn't seem like the U.S. is leaning in very uh, very aggressively to put an immediate stop to to the hostilities right now. So I don't think anyone knows how how long this will will go. Uh, the last um, intense cycle of violence between Israel and Palestine or Palestinians um, lasted for I think almost 50 days, um, not at the same level every day, but it wasn't until about 50 days in where both sides finally, um, you know, came to some kind of uh, tactical pause. Um, and we're only into basically the first week of the violence. So if, you know, previous history is any guide, it could go on for several more weeks, unless there is an ability to kind of, to just get everyone out of the the, the high point of, of where things are right now, but that doesn't seem very plausible at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And we'll be watching the situation the days and the weeks and God forbid the months ahead. 
just a terrible situation all in all. Uh, Javed, we know you had to go, but uh, to our audience, so Ryan and I will have uh, be dissecting this in a bit on what in the world right now. Uh, Javed, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, as we said earlier, we'll be including the link to that op-ed once it's published uh, in the episode description. So thank you. So uh, Ryan and I, uh, we... Uh, had initially recorded sort of a rough draft of uh, what we wanted to say about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, with regards to the recent developments uh, that we've been observing over the past days and the last week, essentially. Uh, But we decided to scrap that just because we just believe that we could not do enough justice uh, to this very complex issue and so on. I mean, when we look at this issue, it is a very emotional issue. It's a very tense issue. Uh, many folks in our audience are pro-Israeli. Many folks in our audience are pro-Palestinian. Uh, and no one, frankly, is waiting for Andre and Ryan to talk about their own opinions on this. Our opinions are not going to you know, contribute to the discourse in a constructive manner. That is not to say, you know, we don't have views on this. We have, you know, very nuanced uh complex views, you know, from an analytical standpoint. But uh, we, we ultimately don't think that that's necessarily going to be the most helpful to uh, this discussion on this very, you know, emotional issue. Uh, what is, I mean, I think we can all agree a very sad issue. Uh, but uh, what we can do is, you know, here at the burn bag, we try to be objective. We try to be analytical. We want to provide you know, our perspectives in an objective and analytical fashion, but we also want to bring in different perspectives uh, in our guests. So what we're actively working on doing is we're trying to bring on pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian voices to discuss their views of this conflict, uh, their views of uh, what is currently happening in the region, in the area, and uh, where we have some invites that are sent out, we're still waiting to hear back on those. Uh, but I mean, as soon as we hear back from them, uh, we'll let you know and we'll try to be producing some good episodes on that. Uh, because again, it's a very complex issue, a very divisive issue, a very emotional issue. Uh, people, you know, you sort of mentioned perhaps something about Israel or something about Palestine. A lot of people can get very angry because they might have family friends, relatives, or they might, you know, identify with the region in, you know, whatever way they identify with the region, whether it's on the Israeli side or the Palestinian side. And uh, it's a very tense topic. So Ryan, I'll sort of uh, bop it off to you uh, to share your thoughts on this. But yeah. Yeah, happily. And, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, easy to scrap a previous recording. Andre and I don't like to kind of limit what we what we say, but we want to be very careful in, in talking about this conflict, as, as Andre mentioned, just because we want to get it right. Um, and so the, you, you hear a lot that Absolutely. right. Yeah, the people in, in the political discourse in the United States around the world are throwing around, you know, terms and, and that is it doesn't really help to kind of resolve the conflict, to help the Palestinian people, to help the Israeli people. And so our goal here is to address what we know analyze it from our perspectives, from a U.S. perspective, from a foreign policy perspective. That's the goal of the podcast. Um, And in so doing, we can provide you with what we know, right? Some of the uh, objective truths of of what is going on uh, in this conflict. And we can also provide you with perspectives, right? Not necessarily our perspectives, but the perspectives of both sides, because this is an issue 
with, with two distinct sides and other actors also involved. And it's important to point out that this is, again, not a one-sided issue. Uh, it, it's, it's far more complex than that. And anyone who, who tries to simplify this, this issue is, is wrong, and at least in my opinion. And I'm happy. I'm comfortable to say that. I agree. But, I agree. And you know, you know, w- one of the reasons we started this podcast was to break through the misinformation, the lack of information that exists uh, out there. Uh, we try to be we try to be 100% factual on this podcast. Uh we bring in guests who we know will provide perspectives that are grounded in facts. Perhaps they have opinions, but they are grounded in facts and sort of grounded in these objective truths. Uh, and like our biggest fear, obviously, is providing something that might not, you know, give you the full story, uh, might have, you know, perhaps some error in a way of looking at it and so on. And with, with this issue, it's very important to, to know all the facts. It's highly important to know all the facts. And I mean, uh, I mean, because, I mean, you know, when you're looking at all the different timelines and so on, one side might claim the other side did something, then you extend the timeline and then it just becomes a very convoluted uh, mess and uh, w- you know we had the Lieberman episode with Professor Victor Lieberman release uh, this past Monday uh, we recorded that about two weeks ago actually we did not anticipate any of this happening when we had actually scheduled it for release this Monday uh, but it just so happens that uh, the circumstances made it so uh, and as we know with that episode we went back a hundred years to dissect this issue and Ryan and I can't necessarily dissect this issue in 10 minutes or 20 minutes with, with like, you know, our uh, base levels of knowledge and so on. And something that I've been very vocal about with the podcast uh, for folks who personally know me, uh, I am very much against, you know, the idea that you can just form policy opinions based on some slide from Instagram you read or as you slide through or some random TikToker who gives you this, you know, information and so on. You had to really do deep investigation on this. You had to read all the different perspectives, whether they are Israeli voices, whether they are Palestinian voices whatever there are third party voices as well you cannot just form your opinions based on what you see on social media whether it's on instagram or tiktok and we do not want you to form your opinions based on what you necessarily hear on this program our program should be a starting point for you to do further investigation perhaps you can walk out of this uh, these episodes with ground level understandings of like yes what is going on why is it important but if you're going to have a good strong opinion on this we want you to do further investigation read up more and educate yourself because the lack of education is contributing to a lot of chaos in our world. Very well said. And, and with that, what, what we will be doing is we will be providing resources. We will be providing week over week updates uh, as, this conf- as this conflict progresses. And you know, again, it's, it's a great tragedy uh, on both sides of the issue. And we want to make that very clear. You know, Andre and I, as we said, we, you know, we have our own personal beliefs on this. Um, but, and, and in that, we both believe that you know, there are losses on both sides. Both sides are contributing to the the escalation of hostilities, um, and we will be discussing them, you know, as 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 it progresses. Um, but you know, again, we we don't want to try to simplify it in a way that gets you a, a pithy bite just because you can't reduce it to that. At least in this instance, that's how we feel. Anyone who is simplifying this issue, this one hundred year conflict that is just again sort of 
rising up is lying to you. Uh, this is very complicated. This is a very long-standing issue, and we do not want to simplify it in any way. In any way, there are real human costs to this on both sides, and we are not aiming to simplify this at all. It's been a hundred years of this. The conflict does not seem to end, and we do not know what the future will hold with regards to the conflict either. All right, Andre, we're sounding like broken records. And so what what we will do is for all of you listening, um, we will commit ourselves to providing you with uh, updates on the situation on the ground with, you know, to the best of our knowledge, and we will be providing resources and providing from both perspectives and the most objective um, facts coming from the ground that we can find. Yeah, absolutely. So Ryan, I I think that's it for us, uh, folks. uh, We have a great episode on Monday that's coming out with Ambassador Ronald Newman. Uh, He was a former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. We'll be talking a bit about sort of the the context of this Afghan war and his opinion on drawdown. We have a great session coming up the next week with a former coordinator of counterterrorism, Nathan Sales, where we talk about the state of our country's counterterrorism operations. We have some great episodes ahead of that. So stay tuned. Uh, We will be providing you updates. We're working on bringing in some additional guests to talk about this issue uh, from both sides and other sides as well. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you soon. See you next week.